This week we are joined by Joey Smith, who currently resides in New York City and is the head bartender at Nomad. Joey grew up in Colorado and got his introduction to the cocktail world while bartending during college. We talked with Joey about his time back in Colorado working in the industry and organizing a music festival, his eventual move to New York City, and using molecular mixology techniques while bartending. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Industry Podcast. I'm your host, Kip Saunders. This is Dan Serretta, the producer extraordinaire. What's going on, man? Well, not too fucking much. I'm just still hanging out being awesome, as always. And mm-hmm. yourself, how are things going with you? Well, besides the fact that the premier is giving me the shaft, but uh, <laughs> well, right. if you got a minute to listen, I'll talk about these new hours we're operating under in Ontario here, where um, all bars have been... This this is being recorded on October 5th. All bars at this point are in Ontario are forced to close at 11 p.m. Because, I don't know, apparently COVID doesn't spread between 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. But between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m., it's just going crazy all over the place. COVID <laughs> everywhere. So it really sucks for bars because a lot of bars don't get busy till 11 o'clock. So it's really cut into our business. I think it's honestly just a... Uh, way for him the government to not have to give us any support money because we're still technically open yeah but cutting our hours back so we can't make any money the only thing that makes sense to me is that he's trying to say oh after 11 o'clock people are getting drunk and they're they're not following because they're drunk they're not following the social distancing and masking and rules as vigorously but to be honest with you that's what we're here for let us do our fucking job you know what i mean like i could we're all trained to in smart serve and like and how how to serve people the appropriate amount of drinks, how to break up fights, all this shit. But for some reason, we aren't responsible enough to make sure people follow social distancing rules. Like, give me a fucking break. It's uh, very frustrating. Yeah, I guess it's the classic uh, couple apples, uh, couple mm-hmm. bad apples ruin the whole bunch. Well, the other thing that doesn't make any fucking sense is that you, what happens is now it's 11 o'clock and I see it happen at the bar all the time and all these people from different social bubbles are just like hey come back to my place why don't you come back to our place well, the bar's closed now anyway so it's actually creating a worse problem that way mm-hmm. than fixing it so anyway that's my little side rant so for the premier of ontario mr ford uh if you got any fucks left over from uh fucking over the service industry in your province just save one to go fuck yourself with yes and, yeah. <laughs> and that's the end of the rant um as usual, we have a great guest for you today. Coming up shortly will be Joey Smith um, from New York. Uh, we should remind you that if you're enjoying the podcast and my ridiculous ranting, then uh, you should uh, subscribe, rate, and review us at The Industry Podcast, wherever you listen. And if you are in the service industry and wish to be interviewed for the show, uh, it's at The Industry Podcast on Instagram. You can just DM us. Um, also, as usual, a shout out to Zach Hanna for the design work at Zach Hanna Design, Z-A-K-H-A-N-N-A-H. So you should check that out. Yes, uh, uh, we'll put a link to Zach's uh, Instagram feed in the show notes as per usual. Also, uh, check out our archives. We had some really good interviews lately with uh, Josh Lindley from uh, Bartender Atlas, mm-hmm. Mary Palak. I think I'm pronouncing that. I'm really bad at pronouncing the names yeah, now, which Alex. is another reason I'm grateful for our today's guest. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, I, I believe I, I believe I didn't mangle Mary's name too mildly there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, check it out, and we'll just get right to today's episode with uh, 
Joey Smith from New York. How you doing, Joey? Doing well. How are you? We are doing as well as we can through all this nonsense. Thank you very much. Yes. How's yep. the uh, How's the pandemic scene in New York right now? Are you guys working? Is it just uh, it's, um, it's okay. It's slowly, you know, coming back. Uh, we are working. I'm actually quarantining right now, but the nomad where I work is, uh, open for outdoor dining. We have a rooftop, which they've turned into like a, a formal dining room. And then they're opening indoor dining. I think actually today is the first day we have a, a couple spaces in the hotel that they're going to allow um, guests of the hotel basically to have cocktails and, and dinner at. So oh, it's right. coming so- along slow. Yeah, so only if you're actually staying at the hotel do you get to use that, or no? I think that's how it's starting. I think we're gonna move away from that, you know, as things go on. They're just there's so many, you know, regulations and and um, precautions that we're taking that I think we're just going at a pace that we're comfortable with in terms of how many people we're gonna let in, where they're gonna sit, what kind of people, you know, guests mm-hmm. we can do. Because we do have hotel guests, and as a hotel, you kind of need to give, make sure that they're comfortable first. So yeah, I think that's what sure. we're doing. What's uh, in New York overall? Is that the scene? They're still not really doing indoor dining or is it just... I, li- uh... I literally think it started today. I think okay. today is the first day, the October 5th. Yeah, so it's 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 happening now. Um, it's mm-hmm. obviously, I think it's 50% or 25% of capacity you're allowed to seat, okay. which in my opinion doesn't make a whole lot of sense because right. restaurants are different sizes. But um, yeah, it's starting right now. A lot of the rules uh, in all these rollouts, certainly here in Canada, have very little logical basis yeah. behind them, I find. <laughs> like, Yeah, it's, uh, it's like one oh, I was just discussing. I don't know why it's okay to be inside from 11 to 11, but not from 11 to 2. That doesn't make any sense. But yeah. We, I've already done that rant. Let's move yeah. on. Uh, <laughs> um, well, it's good to know that you guys are starting to get back up and running. And you say you're quarantined. Did you get sick or did you were you just traveling? I was traveling. I went to uh, Colorado, where I'm from, for... Um, a wedding and uh literally we flew out on the 30th and on the 29th new york added colorado to its compel oh. like, you know it's quarantine oh, fuck. <laughs> as soon as i got back like that day my boss texted me he's like hey sorry to say this but you got a quarantine for 14 days so yeah I'm, uh, sitting at home watching horror movies for 14 days <laughs> right yeah yeah well i think uh, we're in a situation where they might we're getting pretty close to the fact that they might shut us all down again so yeah might be need to brush up on my own horror movie watching. Um, uh, so yeah, you mentioned you you grew up in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, born and raised Colorado. Uh, where in Colorado? Uh, I was born in Denver. Um, I went to college in Boulder, and uh, my family actually owns property near Leadville, Colorado. So I spent, excuse me, a good amount of time up near Leadville, which is and, way up in the mountains. Oh, okay. So that must be pretty nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a large hay ranch. Um, it's at like 11,500 feet, so it's super high Ooh. altitude. Holy fuck. But um, yeah. yeah, it's nice. Uh, and so you, your first job in the industry was also in Boulder. So this was probably happening when you were in college or? Yeah. yeah. Um, my freshman year of college, I had worked in like fast casual restaurants in high school. Um, just like a small burger place and like a little pizza place. And so when I got to college, I needed a job basically right away. Um, I went, walked through the downtown area of Boulder and just applied a bunch of places, ended up working at a restaurant called Salt, which is still there. Um, and kind of worked my way through Salt. I was there for about five years. I was there a long time. And what kind of a place is that? Uh, it's a farm to table kind of American style bistro. Okay. So 
Boulder is unique than a lot of cities. They have a, a zero build rule outside of the city limits, which means that the city of Boulder may change in population, but it doesn't change in size. And it's surrounded by farmlands. So all the restaurants tend to get really fresh, really hyper-local produce. Um, and so a lot of the restaurants in, in Boulder are kind of focused on that. And salt is, is one of them. So there's a lot of you know stuff that was grown within 50 miles of the restaurant. Oh, wow. Um, That's good. And yeah. you um, were you bartending there or were you serving? I started as a, um, a back waiter, which is like you know a, a busser, basically. Yep. Um, and as soon as... Uh, bar backing position became available. I kind of asked for it just because, I mean, you're in college. What's a more fun job in a restaurant than being behind the bar? So uh, I right. was a, a bar back for, I think, six months to a year. And then I bartended for the last four years I was there. And is this kind of place where you're doing a lot of uh, high end, higher end craft cocktailing or is it more like what's what's the clientele like? What are they drinking? Sure. Um, back then uh which was almost 10 years ago now um colorado hadn't really had that the cocktail boom as it exists in most you know in, in new york at least and uh, mm -hmm. a lot of cities um and so when i was there when i actually became a bartender um was at a time when the restaurant had hired a consultant to kind of revamp the bar program so as i was getting promoted we uh started juicing our own juices we put out a cocktail menu with a lot of house-made simple syrups where you could kind of design your own cocktail with all these flavors. Um, and it was, a, it was a really good experience because instead of having to kind of come up as like the new guy when everyone else kind of knows their stuff, we as a whole staff got to kind of train on classics, train on technique, and train on basic cocktail knowledge together. So there was no one really getting left behind. There was no one that was more experienced than the other. And we all kind of came up into the cocktail world um, at the same time at the guidance of this uh consultant that they had hired so it was a at first it was not really a cocktail focused place and as i was there for longer it kind of became more and more of a cocktail spot in downtown boulder i imagine that um sort of helps with team development as well because you're all trying to come up with cocktails together trying to kind of do each other whatever like Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm close with a lot of people from that restaurant still. And it's been a long time. It's I have been in a lot of places and I don't have quite the same restaurant family as I have from that just that first restaurant for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I certainly worked at places where we've done that as well, where it's like the whole team was kind of creating cocktails together. And then I've also worked in own places that there was it was sort of under the direction of one person. And like, I mean, obviously both work, but the one thing uh, when, when it's a team doing it together, you're kind of all pushing each other to come up with even more creative stuff, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's different reasons to work at different places. I think um, the restaurant industry as a whole, I think is kind of known for having this revolving door. A lot of times, like people get someplace, even if you're like super dedicated to the industry, people will get into a restaurant. And then after you're there long enough, you start to kind of fall into this rut and you feel like you need to go somewhere else or find something else, you know, in New York, there's a, a big thing where like a new place opens and all these, you know, well-known great bartenders go work there and they're there for a while. And then they all leave to go open the next new, new place. Mm -hmm. Um, which is just a, it's a, it makes a lot of sense to me in that, you know, people who are ambitious, once you get stuck in a spot, you want to kind of, you know, find the next spot where you're going to, you know, step up from there. So, right. um, uh, it's nice to work in a place where you're all working together as a team because you don't get quite as stuck in a rut since someone else isn't making all your decisions for you. you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And so like we've we don't there's like, seems to be a lot more of this um, sort of bar consultant 
type thing happening in the in the U.S. A lot of people we've talked to on the show um, from the U.S. have have had that experience. Whereas I I know almost nobody who's done that in Canada who's had like a consultant come in. A lot of people have tried to start that business, but I know almost nobody who actually uses it. So, did you find that valuable? I found it incredibly valuable. I mean, it it basically got me on the road that I'm on today, you know, mm-hmm. um, back then I wasn't really thinking of the hospitality industry as a career. And, um, I always wanted to work behind the bar cause I just wanted to know what was in a Manhattan. You know, I, I wanted to know, I just, you know, turned 21. Basically I wanted to learn how to drink and what drinks were. And, um, the consultant did a really good job of kind of, um, letting us know what's out there in the world of drinks and bars. We did, a, we did one project together. Um, every bartender at barback got assigned, uh, two bars from a different city that they needed to research and then come back and present on. So I think my two were Death and Company in New York mm-hmm. and um, another bar in San Francisco. I can't remember right now, but the, the exercise of like seeing what these other bars were doing, why they were special, why they were so famous, who worked there, you know, the classic cocktail or contemporary classics that have come out of there um, really opened my eyes to how deep this rabbit hole goes. You know, it's not just how to make a Manhattan. There's, elements of hospitality and creativity and, and technique that I had no idea. I was just like glancing the surface of. So mm-hmm. um, the consultant did a really good job of showing us that this can, this career can go as far as you want it to. It's not just, doesn't have to just be a college job. And I really uh, am grateful for him for showing us that. Well, that's great. And so do you, um, is this around the time that you start to think to yourself, well, maybe this is something more than just like a job for through to get me through college or something I might want to do? Um, not yes and no. Like I, I wanted to do the best I could at it because, you know, that's in my opinion, the right way to approach any job is just do it the best that you can and kind of keep developing in it. Um, but I was in college for uh, pre-med. I was going to go to medical school. Oh, really? Yeah. And it wasn't until literally like my last year in college that I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore and I needed to find something else. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, what, what sparked that? Don't like dead bodies? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I actually really enjoyed school. I liked all the lab work. I liked, you know, the cadaver lab and all. Um, I, I enjoyed it, but I, I didn't want to spend 20 something hours in a hospital at a time. Like I did a couple follow shifts in hospitals and um, just realized there's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of competition. And it just wasn't what I wanted to do for like forever from then on. So um, oh. I was uh, spending a lot of time at concerts and a lot of time at music festivals and a lot of time basically partying and uh, realized I had a kind of a talent for um, event planning and, and music production and things like that. So I started going down that road. Um, I actually, after college, threw a music festival at my, my family's property just because oh, we had nice. the land. So I, I had basically, I called everybody I know involved in music, um, everyone who's ever played an instrument or put on, put up a stage or anything and just kind of asked in every favor I could. Mm-hmm. And we threw a small, like 300 person two day music festival on our, on our property. And that was kind of my, like, I'm going to try and do something, you know, that's pretty cool. Start a business here. So, yeah, I was going to say like the conversation you have with your parents when you're just like, I decided, um, I'm not going to be a doctor anymore, but what I'd like to do is throw music festivals. How did that go? (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, it was actually their idea. Oh, really? Yeah, I had been talking about um, doing events up there for a while, just kind of like in conversation, not anything serious. And um, they were like, so are you applying to med school? And I was like, I don't really want to. I think I'm going to take some time and like 
figure out, you know, what I can do. And they're like, do you still want to do an event at the ranch? And I was like, absolutely. And they, they were like, absolutely. We'll be behind you. So my parents are actually super involved with it. Oh, my mom great. cooked all the food and sold, you know, food and made breakfast burritos. And my dad oh, wow. security and helped us get power run down to where he had the stage and all this cool stuff. Yeah. And how my many family, people did you get out for this? About 300 over the wow. weekend. That's crazy. And your, your mom's making breakfast burritos for all 300 people? Yeah, she called in all her like old high school friends to come stay in like the house and they just cooked for four days and yeah, it was wow. great. That's super cool. Um, sounds like you got some pretty cool parents. I do. I have great parents. Absolutely. Yeah, I think if I had a similar conversation with my folks, it would have gone very differently. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah. what did you find about like, oh, so now you're in, at this stage in your life, you're like, okay, maybe I'm going to do this. I'm going to do event planning. This thing well, goes well for you in your first real shot at it. So you have success right away. Uh, at some point, you obviously decide that you're going to get back into the bar game. But did, was there anything from this experience of like doing this event planning or the festival that, that you feel carries over to the service industry or, and help oh, you? Yeah. yeah, a thousand percent. I think a lot of bartenders, I mean, I think we're kind of falling out of this trend right now, but I think bartenders for a long time thought of themselves as, you know, star tenders, like that celebrity rock star yeah. kind of persona and dealing with musicians and artists and bartenders at that time were kind of all the same thing. And I kind of <laughs> learned this way of navigating through people about um, the bottom line is, is everyone really having a good time? Like that's really all, that's your number one concern um, and navigating people with big personalities or um, people with different visions is all needs to be in service of making sure that your guest is having a good time at the end of the day. So. And do you, and do you think that we are finally getting out of this uh, star tender kind of thing now and as, and what and if so why like what do you think is causing the shift i think we are definitely getting out of the true star tender thing and i think it's because of saturation mm -hmm. especially i mean i think we all saw it with the beginning of covid when you know every bartender is out of work and you know a lot of really driven people have you know idle hands what are they going to do you know they're going to put up a lot of Instagram posts, a lot of, you know, YouTube content started happening, a lot of people writing blogs, like a lot more people are trying to get their faces out there. And it becomes a lot harder to focus on, you know, the faces that we, you know, would consider a true star tender. So mm -hmm. um, the pool of bartenders with a public persona has gotten so vast that it kind of stopped being so impressive when someone publishes a book or like, you know, makes a seminar happen. Right, and I don't right. think it's necessarily a good or bad thing. I just think it's it's less, um, there are less stars and there's just a lot more voices out there. Hmm. That's interesting. I also wonder if like just COVID in general, because like it's a little humbling when even like you're a star bartender, but now you're out of work too, right? Because there's nowhere to apply your trade yeah. and, you know, it kind of might give you sort of a... Uh, like remind you why you are in the business in the first place, which is to service the guest and not to service sure. your ego. Sure. I mean, that's one thing I learned coming to New York that was a lot different too, is in Colorado and Denver and Boulder, um, we looked to places like New York to see what the industry was. You know, we read the right. books, we, we knew the people um, and getting to meet people um, that were high up in the industry in New York City or San Francisco um, was always really exciting. And now I come to New York and I realize like there's an immense amount of talent here, but we all are kind of working 
for the same thing. Like it doesn't necessarily, you don't have to necessarily be famous to be good and you don't have to be good to be famous. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So it's just, maybe it's me just being jaded being in a, a city now, but um, I've kind of learned in New York and, and um, Southern Teague says this all the time, a high tide raises all boats. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it learning in New York is that the industry really wants to support itself. We all want to support each other. There's some really great people that you wouldn't know their name because they're behind the scenes a lot. Um, and they're to me are just as impressive and uh, as valuable to the industry as those that are putting their face on everything and, and trying to get their voices out there a lot. And you, and you have found that uh, it's a very supportive community in New York because it seemed to me like that if, if there's anywhere that would be cutthroat, it would be there. But um, you're saying, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I mean, there's obviously always going to be like, you know, beef somewhere, you know, grudges every once in a while. But like for the most part, I've never um, felt mistreated or, or um, looked at differently because of where I work. I feel like people are super respectful. We show up to each other's pop ups. We go to each other's bars um, and we support each other's businesses. I think that's the best way for an industry to run. Absolutely. No, oh, that's great. Um, okay, so we'll back up a little bit again. So, because you, you do move to um, Denver at some point and start back right. in the industry at a place called Green Russell. Yeah, I was. Uh, so, I, when I did the music festival, I worked at Vale um, at a place called Mountain Standard for a guy, Donovan Sorning, who I just wanted to call out. He's an awesome bartender in Vale. If you're ever there, check him out. Okay. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I moved down to Denver. I got an offer after doing the music festival to intern for a small um, promotion artist management company. So a concert promoter and artist manager. And I was like, great, I can go get a bartending job and do the music thing in Denver. And I started working at Green Russell, which was a um, small like underground speakeasy style spot on 16th street. And they have a very strong bartender's choice program. So they only have like 10 drinks on the menu, but by far the most popular was, you know, bartender's choice name a flavor and we'll make you a drink around it, that kind of thing. Okay, yeah, so talk to me a little bit about the challenges and maybe the rewards of doing that bartender's choice style bartending, because it's obviously a lot different, it's a little bit more pressure. Yeah, Um, well, obviously the challenges are you're not always gonna make something good. If people get too specific or you don't, you're they kind of try and pull you out of your wheelhouse. Like I served, probably more bad drinks there than I have at <laughs> yeah. any other place in my career. <laughs> right. Um, just because I had the freedom to, you know, and I was experimenting. Um, so um, sorry to my manager, Green Russell at the time, but like yeah. there were definitely some drinks getting sent back. Um, but the strength of that place was I learned uh, how to speak on my, like think on my feet, how to speak well about drinks. Um, and I eventually got better at making drinks up, you know, mixology in general, just because I, you know, put out, you put out a couple stinkers, you're going to get, figure out what actually works. Well, the stinkers, and, uh, yeah, the stinkers help more than the successes in many ways, right? Because you're totally. like, okay, those fucking flavors do not work together. Like, you know, yeah. but you don't know till you try it, right? Totally, totally. I also had like, uh, there was a, I mean, in the, I think the place has changed a lot since I was there. But at the time I was there, uh, there was definitely kind of a, a boys club kind of a toxic environment amongst the staff, I would say, especially in in terms of um, just dealing with guests and dealing with each other. And I kind of learned a lot about how to be more of a team player and and be respectful in the work environment and um, just take the job seriously. It needs to be a professional environment. It may be a bar. We may be able to do a shot once or twice throughout the night, but like it doesn't excuse you acting like a jackass really. So 
Um, and so like jackass to other co-workers or more to the guests more towards just the guests in, or both 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 for general sure. jackassism yeah and it yeah. wasn't a long period of time that i was there that i noticed this happening and it like i'm i'm i don't mean to talk shit on green russell if you're in denver check it out it's definitely a better bar than it was when i was there i think but i, I learned a lot about teamwork and uh you know you got to be the kind of employee that you want to work with and i yeah i i went through i learned a lot of lessons there Regardless. Yeah. So in a way, you almost learned about the value of teamwork due to the lack of teamwork at that place. Yeah, that's a yeah. good way to put it, I would say. Yeah. OK, that's interesting. And let me, uh, while we're still talking about Green Russell, because that's kind of cool. I, can you remember any or the worst combination of flavors that a guest ever asked you to put together oh. for them? <laughs> well, yeah. it wasn't even like that. I mean, the thing was, we only had what we had you know we couldn't make uh, you know we didn't have every flavor right and guests would kind of misunderstand when i say like um you choose a flavor and we'll make a cocktail around it i meant like sweet or sour or like strawberry or like something oh okay approachable and people would come in and be like make me a drink that tastes like portland on a saturday afternoon and i'd be like (laughs) 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 like, i don't know what that i don't know what that means but i would just kind of be like okay and walk away and just make something up because i kind of learned you know if you can explain it away they can't really it's their fault that they weren't specific yeah what are they uh, no this is a little this has got a touch too much seattle in it (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) someone asked for a sandalwood cocktail and i was like sandalwood i don't know how to do sandalwood but See? I learned that it was a lot more fun to just to kind of make something and surprise them with something rather than yeah. like argue with them or try and they're not, they know what they're doing. Well, and yet that's the thing too. Like you always know more than the guest, right? So if <laughs> in most situations, it's if it's like, if they try and trip you up, you just give them what you want to give them. And then if you can talk it up properly, then they're going to love it. Like that's, but we, totally. we have some crazy shit that people come into my bar and be like, Oh, I want something that's like sweet but also um, savory and uh, with citrus, but more of a leather feel to it. And I was like, like I can make what I can make those flavors in a glass for you, but it's gonna taste like ass. So I don't, <laughs> yeah, like I don't know why they yeah. they just think that you can take any flavor in the universe and cram it with another one, and then it's you're gonna because you're a craft bartender, you should be able to make it taste good. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. I- I learned a lot. I learned a long time ago that uh, taste is totally subjective, and what some people might think is too sweet, other might say is too sour, and all of that. So, yeah, and you yeah, there's really two, there's a kind of the two kinds of guests, right? There's the one who's going to be like, no matter what you give them, they're going to love because mm-hmm. they just like they're that they're that personality type. So you and you can you can guess that by your interaction with them. And then there's the other side where no matter what you do, even if you make exactly what they ask, they're going to have a problem with it, right? Like, yeah there's become this new sort of um, phenomenon with the guests where they are like, they get off on trying to trip you up as a bartender. And I never really understood that because like, well, if you're trying to trip me up, that ends up with you drinking a shitty drink. How does that help you in any way? Like I never really understood that. Yeah. It's because- I mean, I'll make it, I'll remake a drink 10 times for somebody if they want mm-hmm. me to. Like, I really don't have a problem with that. You got to pull your ego out of it a lot. Yeah. And just drink. If they're if they're doing if they're really just trying to mess with me a lot of times, there's ways I think to play into it so that you're not looking like a sucker, but they're getting the satisfaction of playing with you a little bit. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. You just kind of play games with them, lighten the mood, make it make it fun. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, 
I just never, for me, it's like, I just don't understand what the guest gets out of that. Like you're just, all you're getting is a poor experience, <laughs> but uh, yeah, whatever. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So you're in um, Denver for a while. And then uh, at what point do you make the move to New York? Um, I was in Denver for a while. I was living with my parents at that time and uh, I was working downtown at the Green Russell. And I was realizing I wasn't making really enough money to like live in Denver, you know, like everyone I worked with had some weird circumstance, like they, oh, they inherited a house and that's where they were living, or they were with a their wife living in like a studio apartment. Like I, as a, you know, single bartender couldn't really afford Denver. Um, and I got a call from a college friend who heard about the music festival I threw. And he said, if you want, I can give you an internship in New York and you can stay on my couch out here until you find like place to live in New York, which I know is not cheaper than Denver, but I figured, you know, if I can't afford Denver, I might as well not afford New York. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, uh, I took the internship in New York and I moved out here after being in Denver for like a year. Yeah. Uh, and so what, what was the internship specifically? What were you doing? It, it was an artist management company. Uh, they're called Red Light Management. They handle a lot of huge names. They work with um, like Alabama Shakes and, uh, uh, fish radiohead there's there's a it's a really large company but um yeah i was interning there kind of answering phones and doing social media stuff for a while when i moved here cool and then uh at some point you decide you're gonna get dust off the old bar spoon and get back into it i actually it's it's actually funny because I, I knew i needed money i didn't have a ton when i moved here um so literally i took one day to hang out with my friends and like get to you know go out to eat and, and chill and then the second day i was in new york I like hit the pavement with, you know, 20 resumes and just walked in neighborhoods that I thought had good bars and just dropped off resumes and talked to people and tried to, to see what the work scene was like. Cause I knew I needed a bar job to, to survive here. So, um, I walked around the, that day, maybe like 15 miles. Like I, I stopped at so many bars. I had to stop and reprint resumes cause I had given away so many. And, um, towards the end of the day, it was like five o'clock. I walked past Booker and Dax which is a bar I knew because I have the book Liquid Intelligence, which was written by Dave Arnold, who owns that bar, and he references the bar a lot. And I was like, oh, this is that cool bar. They do liquid nitrogen stuff, and they have a centrifuge. Right. Yeah, I read um, that book. I had a copy of that book once. I think I left it at one of the, that White Rabbit, the bar I used to own. But yeah, that's a, <laughs> like I had a lot of – That's all. there's a lot of cool shit in uh, – like, like you said, with uh, – I, I tried to mess around with liquid nitrogen, but it's not the cheapest shit to – No. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I saw this bar and I was like, I need to try a drink here. I, I didn't think I would be able to work there because I only had, you know, Denver bartending experience. And in New York, everyone's like, you need New York experience. Um, so I stopped in, I had a drink and I uh, asked the bartender who was working. I was like, are you guys hiring by any chance? Just curious. And he's like, yeah, let me get my manager. And the manager came up and uh, she looked at my resume and she goes, look, it's actually your lucky day. We had a bar back, no call, no show tonight. So if you want, you can do a follow shift tonight and um, that'll be kind of your interview. So I was like, great. I finished my cocktail, filled out some paperwork and I worked a shift at Booker and Dax my second day in New York and they hired me right then. So oh, wow, that's crazy. I ended up getting yeah. a job in record time at a really, really great spot for sure. Yeah. So I, now I imagine um, at this point, the learning curve is getting a lot steeper. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is and it isn't, yeah. Booker and Dax was unique in that the barbacks don't do typical barback stuff. The barbacks actually do 
all the prep. So like I was the one that had to run the centrifuge and do all the liquid nitrogen, you know, batch all the drinks and clarify the juices and things like that. So um, I had just finished a, a pre-med degree. So I had spent a lot of time in labs working with like a lot of the equipment and I had read his book, you know, back to front a couple times. So when I got there, I kind of knew what I was getting into. Um, and I think that's why I succeeded there is because I, it didn't take me too long to kind of pick up the technique that they were mm. doing. And had you messed around with any of the ideas from the book at previous places you'd worked or? Um, I mean, what we could, not not really though, not really. Mm. Um, it's some pretty high falutin shit in that book. So <laughs> yeah, it's not the easiest yeah. stuff. It's, it's not like, I remember when I bought it and I brought it home and I was like, this is great. I'm going to really up the cocktail game at my bar. And I read through it and you realize like, 70% of this shit I I can't even afford to do. Like. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, that's that was the beauty of that bar. And then in a way, it was also like the, the hard thing about that bar is like um, I felt like when we were there and this is this is based on the response we were getting from, you know, our peers in the industry. Um, I felt like we were doing something important. I felt like we had this little temple to a unique style and a unique technique driven approach to bartending. Um, and this was at the time, this was the only place in New York where you can get any of this stuff. Like, right. um, this is the only place you can really get clarified cocktails. This is the only place you can get, uh, a gin and tonic that is completely carbonated together. You know, mm -hmm. um, the, the hot poker drinks that we did, the, the, uh, liquid nitrogen stuff, it was, it was really cool to kind of feel like we were guarding something, um, that we believed in and that you couldn't get anywhere else. We had a really unique product. And are they, I mean, I guess you wrote a book, so maybe not so much, but like, is, it, are the secrets of the trade guarded pretty closely at a bar like no. that or no, they're just. No, like... no, no, not at all. I mean, Booker and Dax is actually a technology brand. Um, the bar is also, was also Booker and Dax, but what it was, was uh, Dave Arnold, um, when he would come up with some unique piece of kitchen technology, it went out under the Booker and Dax brand. Um, so like the centrifuge, the Spinzol that he has now is a Booker and Dax Spinzol. Um, okay. Um, so he, he was always of the mind that like, this is not for us. This is for anybody who wants to use it. Um, that being said in New York, there is kind of this unspoken thing about like, you don't want to do something other people are doing, you know, mm -hmm. um, like for a long time, uh, PDT were the people that did the fat washing, you know, they had the Benton's old fashioned with the bacon wash thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I might like to do a, a, a bacon washed whiskey drink, but like, that's kind of their backyard i'm not going to go you know play over there um and it's there i mean i'm sure pdt would have been fine if someone wanted to do it but it just kind of was this thing like they do the clarified juices they're doing the fat wash thing they're doing this like let's figure out what we do oh that's interesting because i i think uh, it's funny like in at least in this city and a lot in toronto too which is where we are close to uh it's very much more like people walk into a bar and like see what you're doing and then they try and steal that idea and go to it at their bar and, I, and I'm always more of the mindset I was like if somebody wants to do that that's cool um uh, my bar is going to do it better because we came up with it or we were the first to start not nobody comes up with anything wholly unique anymore but like you know we were the first ones doing it in our area we're going to do it better go ahead and try it. or like I use that and it also is like uh imitation being the most sincere form of flattery type idea but um but for me, I'm more of the mindset like you, like I would rather come up with something completely different that's our thing and try and do something new than to just like ape what somebody else has done. 
totally i mean it's it's way easier said than done too to like come up with something new but um oh, and yeah. i mean it doesn't it's not not like i said there's no hard rules like I, nomad now we have a centrifuge now and we we use it you know we're not um we're, we're using the technology that was given to us for the way it was meant to be used you know to serve people and make good drinks so well, and obviously, if they're, if they're selling the equipment, they're not going to be excited about other bars using it. Uh, for, we do actually have, and this is hard to believe that anybody who's not in the service industry would ever want to listen to this podcast, but there are people <laughs> who do. Um, so can you explain to them uh, the idea behind the centrifuge, what it does, what you can do with it? Sure. Uh, a centrifuge is a um, machine that uses um, force to separate things by their mass so if you have uh i think the way that most people might understand it's used is when uh, you take like a blood sample right um not everyone can take blood from everyone else so if you need uh you know ab blood and you have someone who can't take that but you can use the plasma like the liquid part you can spin it in a centrifuge all the more massive pieces like the blood cells will stick to one end and then the liquid will stick to the other end, basically. And you can kind of separate things by um, their individual mass. Mm -hmm. So the way it works in a bar, um, the best way that I like to use it is for uh, Justino's. Um, Justino is when you take like a dried fruit, like a mango, dried mango. Uh, you blend it into a spirit. Um, so it makes kind of like a slurry. And then you spit, you add some enzymes to break down the pectin, which is like the stuff that holds all those pieces together. And then you spin it in the centrifuge. Um, what that does is it'll take out all the solid particles from the fruit and it'll leave you behind with just the sugar and the flavor esters um, and then the spirit. So you end up with a spirit that has a really strong natural flavor from the fruit, a touch of sugar from the fruit, um, and it won't go bad like you know actual fruit will because there's none of those organic solid compounds floating around in it right so you've kind of made like your own flavored spirit is like the yeah the, is the it's, bottom line it's a high octane infusion is kind of what it is mm -hmm. and uh what's uh are there certain spirits that are better than others to do that with i mean obviously vodka works with everything right so um yeah vodka we never really used vodka much we always trying to like match flavor profiles good, um, good. some some notable ones we've done i know we did dates and whiskey a lot so different types of dates with scotches and bourbons um we did mango and mezcal was a really great one um my personal favorite was a uh, called the banana justino which is a uh, bananas and rum uh Ooh. at nomad we do bananas with uh sherry that's really nice oh nice yes. um yeah, it works with a lot. It just, it's more about, I think, the the way the the um, state of the fruit. Like, you want something that's high in sugar but dried and uh, has really strong flavor. You know, uh, this is super interesting, and we haven't talked about any of this stuff on the podcast before. So, if you don't mind, uh, we can talk a little bit more about this. Uh, tell me about some of the other crazy machines, uh, machinery you you were using there, and like what you used it for. Um, yeah, we used. Uh, Liquid nitrogen was obviously the thing we used the most. We used it to chill out our glassware, um, which you're talking about it being expensive. Like the amount that we probably saved on not having to refrigerate or cool any of our glassware, and you could just pull it out, dump a little nitrogen in it, and it's mm -hmm. ice cold. Um, that was great. We used it for nitrogen muddling, where you can freeze herbs 
pulverize them into a powder and shake them into a drink. Um, that that's, was really cool. Yeah, that's uh, that was the kind of thing I was really interested in when I was reading that book because uh, it really the, it gives you this crazy brilliant coloring in your cocktails, right? Yeah, the greenest cocktails in New York for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's cool though. I mean, yeah, I mean, guests love shit like that. Like, yeah, yeah. So and, okay, so that's liquid nitrogen. What else were you using there? Um, one of the more showy things, but actually also made really, really delicious cocktails. Um, Dave makes these red hot pokers, which is, I mean, I don't know what the alloy is, but it's basically like a steel rod with a handle, uh, and you plug it into the wall and one end of it gets glowing red hot. So you'll make a cocktail, typically something a little overproof and it needs to have a, sorry, a unique sugar component. And then you stick the hot red hot rod into the cocktail. The cocktail instantly boil. Uh, the excess alcohol will catch on fire, and then the sugars will caramelize. So you end up with a hot cocktail with like a really cooked, um, caramelized sugar kind of component to it. And then all the excess, you know, overproof nature gets kind of burnt off. So you end up with something that tastes really nice, super hot. It's a great uh, warm, uh, cold weather cocktail thing. Yeah, I should. Uh, is, and did he sell this shit online? Uh, those he does not sell. Those are yeah. incredibly dangerous. And actually, right. the thing about him was, <laughs> I know he experimented with a lot of different metals because I he got the idea from, um, you know, back in the day, you know, mid turn turn of the century or whatever, they would boil, they would heat up rocks and like drop them into their drinks. Mm. Um, and then he heard some rumor that they were doing it with pennies, I think. And so he tried to do it with copper, but it imparted too much of a flavor to the drink. Basically, the alloy that he ended up getting. Um, works really well but they do burn out after a certain amount of time like he had to build new rods you know mid-season a couple times so um it's not a really an item that i would buy just because it's not going to last forever it's only right. going to last for a couple weeks it also does but, um, sound like uh the lawsuit waiting to happen yeah it was basically <laughs> just a red hot molten metal rod that you keep on your counter <laughs> yeah. oh man that's like <laughs> That's got uh, employee lawsuit written all over it. <laughs> yeah, we did a lot. We did a lot of dangerous stuff, but yeah. you were all very well trained. I was, I will say. So, how long did you work there? Uh, I worked there until it closed, so about a year and some change. So that place is gone for good. That's too bad. Um, it is. And so, what is what are those guys doing now? Like, obviously. So they opened a place called Existing Conditions. Um, Don Lee and Dave Arnold. Uh, opened a new bar and it was basically kind of the same thing. I think they toned down the kind of in your face nature of a lot of the you know crazy stuff they were doing. They tried to make it a little more accessible. Um, and it was a fantastic bar, but COVID uh, has claimed existing conditions. So yeah, um, they are currently looking for a new project, I think, or I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what they're up to, but they are without yeah. a bar at this point. Wow. That's, that's, that, I mean, that it's bad enough that you hear about it, like all the small little independent places closing. But then when you hear about like people trying to do super innovative, cool shit and like the best city for cocktailing in the world. And and then it's like COVID's getting them too. that is that's when this stuff really starts to get sad. Right. Like, uh, it got it gets super real. You know, we've lost some yeah. really, really great places. And there's a lot of really great bartenders without work right now. Yeah, I can imagine, especially in New York, right? Like, that's got to be crazy. There's so much. I saw people, people with talent in any field flock there, right? So you get a lot of the same thing with the bartending. And now you, you've got a shit ton of bartenders who, with a lot of talent who can't find a job. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, what are some of your other play, favorite places to go in New York? Oh, wow. Um, 
a lot of them closed, man. I used to go yeah. to Blacktail, which closed actually before the pandemic, but uh, I loved that bar. Um, that's a good question. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and shout out Leanda in Brooklyn. Okay. Leanda is a mezcal tequila agave central bar. Um, and I can't say this about any bar. I've never had a bad cocktail there. Like I've, I've, I've never, I haven't tried every cocktail they've made, but I literally, every time I go, I have three or four and it's always fantastic. So. And what do you think uh, is, is the key to putting together a great cocktail? Like what's, what can you tell our listeners about like what, what should any good cocktail bring to the guest? Um, that's a good question. Cause I mean, it can mean like, it depends on your mood to be honest. Like sometimes I want something super simple and refreshing um sometimes i want something super out there and something that's going to surprise me so the one thing that i think everything has to have in common is balance mm-hmm. you, you need something where you're not just it's, it can't just be a one note drink or even a two-dimensional drink you need something that has depth and uh a story throughout the sip you know mm-hmm. and you taste it first it tastes like one thing and it moves into something else and into something else um, and being able to balance all those flavors without any of them coming off as offensive is is the real tricky part, I think. Yeah, it's really to the point now where like cocktails sort of began of this thing where it's like, oh, I want like it came off like, oh, I, I like to taste the cranberry juice. I want a bucket of cranberry. Right. And to the point now where people are crafting cocktails in the same way that people distill spirits and wine uh, in that you're looking for, like you said, like a multitude of different flavor experience happening in every sip, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's funny how that's changed over time because what you're describing is exactly the same way you would describe what you'd be looking for in a good glass of wine or a glass of whiskey. Absolutely. Hmm. Uh, okay, so now you move to this bar. So from there, you end up getting the job at Nomad. Is that correct? Yeah, well, so... Booker and Dax closed kind of suddenly. We had like a week after they announced it to kind of figure our stuff out. Uh, I was interning. I wasn't making, I was an unpaid internship. So I was um, kind of at a crossroads where I can try and swing it for a couple of weeks without a job and try and get a job in the music industry, or I can um, go to Nomad, which had actually, Nomad reached out to me and uh, offered me a position, which was um, super flattering and really um, nice of them to do. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, I, I applied for some music industry jobs. Um, the jobs I was getting, I was kind of really turned off by. They weren't they, the music industry didn't pay me enough to live in New York, um, and I was basically like, okay, I'm gonna either go all in at Nomad or just be really broke for a long time in New York. So I went all in at Nomad, and I haven't looked back since. It was a, it was a great decision. Uh, okay, so talk to me. We've had a few people who have worked in like hotel bars as well. I'm sure it's a different experience in New York. Obviously, uh, we we did some research on your bar. Uh, it looks amazing. Um, the, so I'm sure you're getting lots of like street traffic and people are not staying at the hotel. Obviously, well, I mean pre-COVID. Um, but um, like, what? Talk to me about the the kind of guests that you're getting at a place where you're getting a lot of people who are actually staying at the hotel. Because it's definitely a different crowd, right? Yeah, definitely. Nomad is a very unique crowd. It's it's a very diverse crowd, but um, the so New York obviously has different neighborhoods for different businesses, kind of. You know, there's like the financial district, and then there's Soho, which is like fashion and all of that. Um, and it works the same with like hotels as well. They kind of center around certain industries. Uh, the Nomad tends to attract a really high entertainment um, type, you know, business person. Uh, high in the fashion world type person 
um, and then some other like finance or, or business people, but not quite as much. So the, the crowd that we get at Nomad is tends to be very creative and um, yeah, so definitely affluent, but also in, in more creative industries for sure. And so does that influence how you craft your cocktail list? Like I know you're, you're the head bartender there, correct? I, well, so I became head bartender about two weeks before they shut the bar down. So oh, okay. <laughs> congratulations on your promotion. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was, it's, it's been a great six months as head bartender. Also. Um, but yeah, I've been there for a while and I, I was like a senior bartender there from before that, but um so yeah. you were involved in crafting the cocktail list, I'm sure. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, to, like when you know you're sort of, and maybe it doesn't make any difference. Maybe you're like how you craft your list is just how you craft you craft your list. But um, do you is there any pressure creatively to when you know you're the you're the guests that you're servicing are in the field of in creative fields for the most part? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I would I would say absolutely. The whole hotel is. Um, it's all about kind of collaboration between departments and between everything. So everything from the, you know, the way the hotel was designed architecturally to the, you know, the way the food is designed downstairs to like our style of service, like it all needs to make sense together. Mm -hmm. um, our method of building a menu, it doesn't ever stop at just one person. So um, we all can come up with ideas and then they go through the head bartenders and they get presented to the beverage director and those eventually make their way up to um, the managing partner of the hotel, which is Leo. Um, like everything has to get approved kind of by everybody to make it all the way through. And so oh, all those design right? choices. Like every, like an, an individual cocktail say that you came up with goes as high up as the, the manager of the hotel? Well, cause so Leo, um, Leo started uh, as a bartender at 11 Madison Park and he was there when they opened uh, the Nomad, he became kind of the uh, manager or beverage director for the whole company. And like he, he worked his way up and through a lot of promotions that he is now uh, works for the Sedell group, which is the hotel group that we all are a part of. Okay. Um, so his roots are in the bar, which is why I think he's so in, involved with us as bartenders. And when we put up drinks, they kind of need to go through him. Is that, uh, is there, are there some frustrations with that? Like, it seems to me like if you have to run something up so many flagpoles before it gets approved, then it can, the things can just take a while. Um, there could be, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we all came to Nomad to work for Leo. A lot of us did at least. Um, and his input is always very fair and, and, you know, we've all learned things from him in these kind of R and D sessions. So, uh, there may be frustrations. Like, of course it's frustrating if you put up a drink and it doesn't taste like it tasted yesterday and it's just not what people want. And maybe they do like it and they file it away and it never sees the light of day again. You know, there's, there's always frustrations with that. But um, I think that exists kind of at any bar and it's, it's better to be, at least in my opinion, I, I'm, I'm enjoying being a part of this, this company because I feel supported by them uh, as opposed to being worried about, I'm not getting, you know, the drinks that I want on the menu. Right. And, uh, and that kind of R&D also, like when you're, when you have to recreate the cocktail that many times for so many different people's approval, at least, at the very least, you, you're getting pretty consistent with it, right? Like, yeah, yeah so that's well, probably Everything one. needs to be done with intention, I think. If you're yeah. going to make really great drinks, especially ones that can be replicated by a huge team of people for hundreds of guests a night, you know, um, it's important that we really take our time and think about these things.
Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the, the R and D sessions, because we haven't talked a whole lot about that on the show either yet. Um, yeah. Uh, like, well, just walk me through how that would work at the hotel, like from, okay, we're, we're coming out with a new cocktail list, say in a month or whatever. I don't know when you start working. I'll just let you go and describe it. Sure. Um, the way it works is you kind of, um, well, it's worked a couple different ways from the time I've been there. We've had different beverage directors. Um, but, uh, the ways that it usually goes is they kind of come up with a list of flavors that they're going for. And this can be based on the season as well as the food menu that's about to launch or whatever. And, um, those kind of go out to the team. And then if you have an idea for one of those flavors or something that you want to try, you kind of pitch the idea to the head bartenders and the head bartenders will kind of talk you through the idea and kind of really try and suss out what you're trying to do. Uh, and then they'll kind of give you the go ahead to move forward with creating, you know, the syrups or the infusions or whatever it is that you need. Um, and then you make your cocktail. Um, then you bring it to an R and D session and you go behind the bar and you make the drink for everybody and people can make suggestions like maybe add this, maybe take this away. Like maybe we should try it with this glass or than that. Um, and after, a couple rounds of doing that, maybe you make five or six or seven drinks. Um, it's either going in a direction that we like, or it's going in a direction we don't like. And if it's going in a direction we like, we'll probably table it and come back to it in the next week where we have fresh taste buds. And if it's going in a direction we don't like, we'll either kind of just say no, or you can um, maybe give a suggestion to like, maybe you should take this ingredient and, you know, do it in a different direction, you know, come up with a different way to do the infusion or remake the syrup a better way or something like that. Um, and we do that for about a month until we have, you know, 10 new drinks. Ah, it's crazy. It's, I mean, it's, that's, that's the way you should do it. The more people tasting the, the better, the better you're going to have it, better chance you're going to have of creating a perfect cocktail. Uh, and it sounds like extremely collaborative, which I also like. Yeah, for sure. It is definitely collaborative. Quick question. Like when you come up with these cocktails in that environment, how much of that is based on what clients are asking for versus like what you're thinking that people might want. Like, is it a little I bit? I would of say both? very, very little. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't really have guests asking for like guests when they're asking for something, they're asking for, at least in, in this market, like, um, can you make a smoky old fashioned or can you make a spicy margarita? Oh, okay. um, and those like, you know, we have, a dozen spicy margarita variations that we can make you. So yeah. if we were just going off of like what guests want, like we, every drink would be like cucumber and mint or vodka. <laughs> or, you yeah. know what I mean? Like it's yeah, that yeah, stuff. Actually. We we have that, we have that covered. Um, this stuff is more about like, what can we do that is going to be really unique and challenging and sure. something introduces like something new to clients. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Like, like, my, sorry. My, ahead, Joy. I only drink that. I, so Leo just released his cocktail book, the Nomad Cocktail Book. And the only drink that I got in the book was a, a mustard seed infused whiskey sour cocktail. Mm. And like, the reason that that drink got through, I think, was just because it was a super unique combination of flavors. It was refreshing and, and everything like that. But that's that's like where my head's going. Nobody would ask me for a mustard cocktail. But right. when I figured out a way to do it, then I was like, we got to try this. And that's, I think, more where the ideas are coming from. Yeah, I kind of feel like the guest is coming to well at least this should be the experience the guest is coming to your location because they want to try what you have to offer them more than the other way around right maybe yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's the way it should that's the way I'd it say should like, yeah <laughs> i'd say like 10 percent of guests really want to try the cocktails and the rest want vodka sodas <laughs> right well you know what i've discovered uh, over the years is that 
I mean, yes, you're always going to get people who already know what they want to drink and that's what they're going to drink no matter what, right? But when when people come to your place for the first time, I find that a lot of them are like, okay, they will try the cocktail list. Maybe they'll come the second time and try another cocktail. But then if they keep coming back to the bar, eventually everyone just reverts back to what they drink. You yeah, know? sure. No one's going to just keep drinking cocktails all the time. <laughs> so, yeah. We would notice this a lot at the Nomad Bar, which is more of our like high volume area. So it had more casual food and a lot of standing room and things like that. Um, that different times of the night would be kind of dictate what kind of drinks we're going out, right? So like right at five when we opened is after work crowd, a lot of martinis, a lot of old fashions. Like that's mm -hmm. what that was. Then it moved into the pre-dinner crowd. And that was like a lot of house craft cocktails, like one-off cocktails because people are having a fancy drink before they sit down for dinner. And then that kind of extends into dinner and then you get towards like 8 p.m. Then it transfers into like, oh, people are getting ready to go party. So that's a lot of espresso martinis and vodka sodas. Yeah, yeah. And then at the end of the night, that's when you start getting that. Then it's 100 percent vodka sodas, basically. <laughs> yeah. And like margaritas, just like people start going crazy towards the end. But you could yeah. kind of tell like what kind of people you were getting based on the time of day, for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about that, but it makes I mean, it makes the world of sense, right? Like, yeah, that, that's how people drink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, late night also would be when you're starting to get into like just a whiskey or a glass of wine or something like that as well. Yeah. Right. Like. It's the end of the night. This is like my nightcap sort of drink. That's when you start getting into people like they're going to drink what they're going to drink. That's when yeah. people start ordering their, that's my thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. What's your thing? Oh, what's my thing? Um, I, don't know, I don't know if you can see it, but we have quite a liquor yeah. collection here at this house. Um, I like mezcal a lot. Uh, I like whiskey a lot. This summer I've been drinking a lot of uh, hard seltzer. So oh, yeah. I'm not too, uh, not too bougie about it, but yeah. if I go to a, if I go to a bar, I'm obviously going to try their, their thing. You know, I want to try a cocktail off the list, but yeah, we had, um, uh, Josh Lindley from uh, bartender Atlas on a couple of weeks back. And he was saying that, and I thought it was really poignant where, you know, these people, like you've come to a cocktail bar, you're not going to a sports bar, you're not going to whatever, right. You're coming to a cocktail bar you almost owe it to the place and to the people who put all the work into the, uh, the cocktail list to at least try one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because and, and I know that not every guest guests have the work that goes into this shit, but for us in the industry, at least we kind of owe it to them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like serving people that are drinking fun cocktails. Like mm -hmm. to me, it's always exciting when they're like, what's next? And I'm like, Oh boy, I get to like, look in my book and like figure out something else for this person. Um, I mean, like I said, though, the Nomad is a huge, huge bar and it's got a lot of different kinds of people. So, you know, uh, I do appreciate people that are into our house cocktails, but I, I don't hold it against somebody that's not, you know, if they're if they're there for vodka sodas all night, like they're going to get just as much attention from me as someone. Sure. Drink yeah. Or whatever. yeah, exactly. So, there's also a certain uh, uh, there's a certain quiet dignity to knowing what you like to drink and just fucking drinking that. <laughs> totally. Yeah, um, totally. Um, what do you think goes into, uh, this is something else I like to ask the guests, but like, what do you think goes into making a perfect list? Like, a, like is, is variety key or is it better to have a focus? Like what, what, what's your opinion on that? That is a good question. Just because I think that is something that a lot of people approach differently and I can see the pluses and minuses of everything, or even just how do you, um, how do you like, how do you separate your menu? You know, are you going to have it be, you know, 
by spirit or you're going to have it be by like type of cocktail or you're going to have it like originals and classics or anything like that. You know, there's a lot of different ways to do that and they're all effective in different ways. Um, I prefer a list that, you know, is probably done more to style of cocktail than the base ingredients in terms of like, I want something strong and stirred on a rock or I want something low ABV or I want something light and refreshing. Like you kind of need one, maybe two of each of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of fill out the categories that way, as opposed to saying whiskey, gin, vodka, tequila, these are our cocktails, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and when you're, so when you're like putting together the idea of having the list and like, like instead of, do you, do you put any thought into, Oh shit. Like I, I did some low ABV drinks. I did some, uh, some stir drinks. I did some shake drinks. I did some with juice or whatever. Do you put any thought into the spirit, or do you just let it happen how it happened? No, totally. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to. You don't want to end up with a menu with no whiskey and three right. tequila cocktails on it. But um, we also one thing at Nomad that I I've never done at another bar is they kind of take a, a tiki approach to drinks, and that the, we'll mix spirits a lot. Um, so like we have drinks with gin and mezcal in them, or we have drinks with tequila and sherry and like finding those affinities. So when people ask for, you know, a gin cocktail, there might be some mezcal in it. And like, mm-hmm. to us, it's still a gin cocktail. Um, so, but I think breaking things down by like, this is just a tequila drink kind of limits you in terms of making the best or most interesting tasting thing. So. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the competitive bartending you've done. Uh, I know you've done some. You can maybe just run us through what you've done as far as competitions go. Oh, well, I've done a lot of competitions. I've only, I haven't won any of them, so <laughs> it's not uh, it's all right. I have a huge thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the biggest one I did was we did uh, Espelon cocktail fights last year. Me and my friend Connor, who I actually, I worked at Salt, that first restaurant with Connor, I was his bar back there. And then I moved to New York and he said he wanted to move back to New York because he's from here. And he became a bar back at Nomad. So uh, Connor and I went full circle, but he convinced me last year to enter the Espelon cocktail fights. And we won the battle of New York and we went to Mexico with them. And we got to go to Portland cocktail week and compete uh, for like the national title there. And we, we came in top three, so we got pretty far. It was That's a good great. time. And so tell me a little bit about, like, the like how does that competition work? Like, just explain the bit from start. Oh, to yeah. Um, so Espelon is a tequila, obviously. And mm-hmm. uh, Cocktail Fights, it's done kind of like a, uh, like a Lucha Libre tag team match. Um, so you and a partner create, like, a theme. You wear a costume. You create a cocktail within that theme. Um, and the way it works is they'll call you up, they play your intro song and you do like a little bit on the okay, stage. Okay, just back it up, back it up. I need to know <laughs> what your costume was, what your entrance music was. Right. Okay. Um, I was the queen bee. We were the killer bees. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I dressed in, in drag. I had like a full queen bee outfit and put makeup on and everything. And my partner Connor was the twerker bee. Yeah, okay. So he dressed like a worker, but he like had a big ass stuffed in. Yeah. And he kind of shake it around. Uh, that's good. Uh, yeah. And what was your entrance music? Uh, we came out to "I'm a Bee" by the Black Eyed Peas. Okay, great. Uh, and then, <laughs> what was your cocktail? Just so we. Uh, that cocktail was a what did we call it? I think we called it Queen Bee, and it's uh, tequila, um, jalapeno infused agave. Uh, clarified lemon, uh, chamomile, and uh, Lustau Blanc Bianco Vermouth. 
Sign me up. Yeah. And okay, so now you can continue. So what happens then? You get up on stage and uh... yeah, you get up on stage. You you make they say go and you you're competing against a couple of your teams. You make the drink, and then uh, when you serve it to the judges, you can kind of do another. They give you the mic and you can kind of do another bit or like a skit or something to explain the drink to the judges. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And so and then this ends up in Portland somehow. Yeah. So they do regionals across the U.S. Uh, and then they take the top 11 teams and uh, those people get to go on a trip to Mexico to the Espelon distillery. And then uh, they take you to Portland cocktail week to compete uh, there. So oh, cool. uh, yeah. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. That's a good experience for sure. And then you also did tales of the cocktail, correct? Yeah. I was, a, I've been a cap uh, two years. You know. I was going to be this year, but obviously that didn't happen. So. Yeah, no, we've had a few people on the show who got uh, COVIDed out this year. <laughs> yeah, for sure. uh, yeah. Talk to me a little bit, because I just because we have had a few people on the show who have done Tales of the Cocktail, tell me how you feel that experience has helped you and, and what you got out of it. Um, it is probably the best extracurricular, I'll say, kind of experience I've had in the industry. Um, being a cap is... It's not about, you know, bar technique. It's not as much about learning mixology or even really bartending. It's kind of more about uh, leadership and networking and kind of making yourself more valuable to the industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, so there obviously is a, a part of it that is going out and just meeting amazing, you know, legends of the industry and people that do really crazy stuff in the industry. Um, and that's really cool. But you also get to meet people that you would never have met before. You know, I, I'm working alongside some of the most talented people from around the world um, to put out these thousands of drinks for all these seminars. And um, I don't know, it's just, you make really good connections. I've made really good friends there and uh, I cannot wait every year to go back. It's, it's a really good time. I can imagine. And also just like, I mean, you're working alongside guys and you're just kind of doing prep work, but like you, you're, you're talking to the people about, I'm sure, cocktails and bartending. And like, you must just be picking, it's just like, it must be a vast resource for information. Totally. Absolutely. Uh, and the, the opportunities I've had from it just to travel. And, you know, when I'm in another city, there's a, there's a cap there that I, I have met before and we can hang out. Right. Um, or if someone wants to come to New York, like being in this city, um, I feel a little spoiled. Like I came from a smaller market and I remember looking to New York um, as this kind of unreachable place. And now that I'm here to be able to be a resource to people that aren't here, um, you know, if someone needs a crouch, couch to crash on or someone needs to get in touch with somebody at one of these places, um, it's really cool to be able to extend that um, privilege of living here to other people for sure. Um, I, we'll let you go soon. You're giving us a lot of time, but it's super generous. Thank you. But uh, oh, I, I just have a couple, uh, I just have a question about like the scene in New York, for instance, like how, because it's such a vast city and there's so many different areas of Manhattan even, right? Like you were discussing earlier. Um, like, so if you have worked at um, the place, having worked at the places that you've worked at, like how, <laughs> this is kind of a weird thing to talk about for yourself, I guess, but like, I'm just interested in like, how far does your name ring out in the city as like somebody who's known? Well, my name is Joe Smith, so no one remembers me. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little uh, forgettable. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's not as much about, like I said, like I think the star tender thing is kind of dying a little bit. It's mm -hmm. kind of just making friends and, you know, being a, a social person. So just um, the same as anywhere else. There's no difference. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm like a well-known person in the city by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I do like to go to bars and I do like to talk to bartenders. 
And when there's a new spot that I have a friend at, like the, the longer you're here, you know, the more people, you know, at more places just by, it's like a numbers game, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's just like any place you kind of have to just establish yourself as a, as a person there and go out to bars, try people's drinks, say hi to people, get to know people, you know, yeah. it's like I said, a high tide rises all boats. We all want to be, you know, friends with as many, as many bartenders as we can, I think. Yeah. And I, I think that we, I'm glad that you mentioned that too, about the start to anything kind of getting over with like the end, a little bit of the competition um, starting to wane a little bit where it's now like, let's just all lift each other up where, I mean, we all have, especially now post COVID where we all know our industry struggling so much, like the, we all need to just have each other's backs right now, you know, like, and support each other. Like, well, yeah, I, I like, I, I think more about like on my off nights about, okay, should I be going out to like, you know, I'm, I'm at the age now I got a family. I'm like home mostly on my nights off, but like, I'm almost feel guilty now. Like, should I be going out to support other places? You know, like you start to get into that mindset. Like what, what can I do to help other places? Yeah. It's super tricky. I mean, mm-hmm. having lost existing conditions, which was a bar, I, you know, had special meaning for me. Um, you know, before I was kind of stuck at home, like everyone, I was, didn't want to go out. I didn't, I feel good going out. And now that I'm, or not right now, but now that I was back at work, I was kind of like, oh, now that I'm being exposed by just being at work, I want to go out and support, you know, other people in the industry, which is actually kind of a dangerous like way to think about it in terms of the (laughs) fact there's a pandemic going on. Right. um, It's hard to, I mean, I feel like, fuck it, man. Like we're, if we're either all going to get it and we're all going to go down together, so we may as well help each other up in the interim. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how else to deal with it. Anyway, Joey, thank you so much for giving us your time today. You're a cool dude, and thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Um, Thanks so much. Is there any, uh, can we, can you, do you want anything you want to plug social media wise or anything you're doing on the side you'd like to talk about? Uh, No, no, I'll I'll give my Instagram. I'm at at Alotta Coladas, A L O T T A C O L A D A S. Uh, and I review pina coladas. So if I'm at your bar and you have a pina colada on the list, I will order it and post a review of it. So. Oh, is that right? How'd you get into that? Is that like a go-to drink for you? Or? It is the go-to. I have this thing about pina coladas, just that I've had the best pina coladas at the shittiest bars. Oh, really? <laughs> and I started to kind of realize like, you can't judge a bar by its pina colada and you can't judge a pina colada by its bar. And I just wanted to kind of show that by reviewing them. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, we'll yeah. check that out. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh, luckily uh, my bar doesn't have one. So I don't have to that. Uh, you, uh, okay. Thanks Joey. Appreciate it. Yeah, Be safe. And I hope that uh, you're back at work soon and uh, you're out of quarantine and, and this all just gets back to normal for all of us. <laughs> so thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Okay, yeah. thanks, man. Thanks, man. Bye.